Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of College and Career Coffee Chats. I'm so excited to kick off this season with Natalie Morales Sevilla. Tenemos una historia fenomenal que ella va a compartir con nosotros. And this episode is going to be in English and Spanish, Spanglish. We are going to jump back and forth between our languages because we think that it brings the authenticity to our experiences. Um, so that is a disclaimer at the beginning. I hope you stick around um, for this episode. I'm going to briefly introduce Natalie and then she was is going to take it off and share her story from her voice. So really quickly, Natalie Morales Villa is a Latina entrepreneur, motivational speaker, certified language translator in Spanish and higher education consultant. She graduated in May 2022 from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, HGSE for short, with a master's in higher education administration. She has a bachelor's in political science and a minor in Spanish. Her story has been featured on CBS News, Univision, ABC News, Good Morning America, Al Dia News, and Telemundo. She is going to share with us her uh, story and her immigration journey, as well as what project she's working on right now. And fun fact, Natalie and I met about a year ago, uh, right before she went viral. Uh, and she's going to tell that story too. Um, and we've been wanting to connect on this podcast for about a year and a half. And because life takes you on different journeys, and we're all doing our own thing. Uh, we hadn't had a moment to actually record. So I'm so excited to sit here with her today. And um, if you're listening on the audio podcast, make sure you're subscribing. And also, this will be a video on YouTube for you to see her beautiful face um, and our connection on the video format. So before we begin and hear it directly from her, let's cheers our cafecito. <laughs> yes, salud. <laughs> salud. So get your Perfect cafecito. Perfect weather. Mm-hmm. Get your cafecito, get your tea, whatever you need, some yerba mate, lo que se te plazca. Bueno, entonces, ahora, I'm so excited. Natalie is here with us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for, one, having this platform. It's so needed. Thank you for reaching out. Like you said, we've been trying to do this for about a year and a half. And I'm so happy that we reconnected again last week. So quick uh, summary of how we reconnected. We both figured out that we're uh, U.S. Department of State Fulbright-Gilman alumni for studying abroad. And I actually just spoke at Miami Dade College for a grant that, uh, for Fulbright Latinx. And I posted about it. We're connected on Facebook. And now here we are a week later. So I'm yeah. super happy. Yes, I love how the Gilman uh, uh, US Department of State Network just like keeps connecting and reconnecting individuals. And that's, that's the best part about study abroad and those programs is you can always go back to that network and find like-minded individuals to chat. So yeah, I'm so excited. No, definitely. It's not just the experience while you're there and also getting funded because there's scholarships for study abroad, but also what comes after the connections that you're able to make. There's conferences, there's alumni literally all over the world and see like Delicia and I, now we're here speaking. I'm in Georgia. You're right now at NYU, right? Yes, I'm in NYU uh, graduate school. 
So it's been a transition for you, graduated from Harvard and moving around from Georgia to Boston and me from Florida. I was I'm actually in Florida now, even though I grew up in New Jersey um, and from Florida back to New York. So we there's been a lot of movement for the both of us. <laughs> Oh, yes. So fun fact, actually, around this time last year, I was driving from Boston back home. And I did a, a quick stop in NYU because I have a friend who's there. I stayed in New York. She gave me a tour. So oh yeah, so, again, there's so many connections. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. So tell us about your journey, your immigration journey. And uh, if you identify as first generation or primera generacion, how do you define that for yourself outside of the textbook definition um, and outside of how academia defines it? Because uh, Natalie also works in higher education. Most definitely. I'll start by telling you where I was born. Uh, yo nací en México, en un pueblito que se llama El Mesquita Lurango, México. I was five years old when my parents left me at the care of my grandparents. They immigrated to the United States because they wanted to establish themselves first. And, you know, so now that we're talking about Fulbright, about Gilman and all these grants to study abroad, I have a very unique story that ties <laughs> to study abroad. So, cuando yo estaba en México, yo tenía unos pollitos, ¿verdad? Y esos pollitos vivíamos en, en granja, ¿verdad? Entonces, Esos pollitos me los compró mi abuelita y eran mi razón para vivir, eran la razón por la cual yo me despertaba, para cuidarlos, alimentarlos. Total que cuando llegó el tiempo para reunirme con mis papás en Estados Unidos, yo no quería irme. Yo quería quedarme a cuidar a mis pollitos y yo tenía miedo que mi abuelita los fuera a hacer caldo de pollo. If you're Latino and you have pets, you know, if you know, you know, more than likely they're going to end up chicken soup or other forms of food. So I was very worried. I didn't want to reunite with my parents in the U.S. because I wanted to take care of my chickens. So, you know, eventually I did reunite with my parents. And I would call my abuelita every week that we did on the payphone because back then it was payphones, right? We didn't have WhatsApp. We didn't have the technology that we do now. So the first thing I would ask her was, Abuelita, ¿cómo están mis pollitos? Please tell me you haven't made them chicken soup. <laughs> And ironically, we ended up living eventually in Gainesville, Georgia, which is known as the poultry capital of the world, because the Latino community here is very unique in the sense that it's very new to Georgia. Okay. 30 years ago, Gainesville, Georgia was predominantly white. Now, 42% is Latinx. So just wow. imagine, in 30 years, we've had that boom. And it's because the poultry plant owners could not find workers so there's rumors that eventually they started placing signs at the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. So when people would cross, they would see a sign that said, come to Gainesville, Georgia, there's work here. And that led to thousands and thousands of people migrating here. For my parents, it was because people from our village had already resided here. You know, that's usually how immigrant networks work. Mm -hmm. One person comes over and then a whole bunch come over. So I did grow up in Gainesville, Georgia, the poultry capital of the world. And that's actually how I started my Fulbright essay two years ago. Amazing. Which, I love disclosure, that. I, did not, I did not get accepted for Fulbright, which well, I was very upset about. Where did you apply I for applied, Fulbright? Yeah, I applied to do an ETA, an English teaching assistantship in Mexico, and I was so excited about it. I worked so hard on it, and I really thought I was going to get it. Unfortunately, I didn't get it. 
But then on the flip side, I got accepted to Harvard. So what I talked about at Miami Day College is that when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And when it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. Maybe it's not meant to be at that moment, but it is meant to be later on. And sometimes at that moment you get frustrated. Oh my gosh, I worked so hard to apply to this scholarship, this grant, this job. You don't realize until a year later why things worked out the way they did. And that's part of my first gen journey too, figuring things out along the way. Absolutely. I was just going to say, it, people apply to Fulbright two, three times before they get it. So if you're listening and you're a first-gen student and you're interested in Gilman or Fulbright or the Boren or Schwartzman or any of those fancy, um, the Rhodes, the Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Gates, Cambridge scholarship, please apply again. If you, oh, yes. um, if you didn't get it the first time, apply again, strengthen your essay, get support, talk to people. Because like you mentioned in when I graduated in 2014 and 2015, I wanted to do the Schwartzman masters in China. I applied. I was so excited. I wanted to go. It was only a year commitment and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. But that year later, I was prepared for the Fulbright. So I applied for the Fulbright again and I got the Fulbright. So yeah. like the same for you, you applied for Fulbright, didn't get it, but then you got into Harvard and that experience has probably strengthened you and supported you in so many ways that now I would say apply again for the Fulbright and see what happens. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, you know, another full disclosure, I actually applied for Gilman three times. And I got the third time. Y como dicen, la tercera es la vencida. Y puedo estudiar en el extranjero, todo pagado. Es algo que le digo yo a los padres de familia y a los estudiantes. Hay becas. Si uno de sus hijos sueña con estudiar en el extranjero, hay becas que lo pueden cubrir todo. No se den por vencidos. Así mismo, yo también estudié en España. Estuvimos en el sur de España igual juntas. Bueno, ¿en qué año te fuiste? Yo fui a Nerja, España en el 2017. Ya no puedo ah. creer que hace cinco años. Bueno, yo hace diez años, en el ah. 2013. Y Perú, para lo cual me dieron la beca de Gilman, fue en el 2019. Así que también ha pasado el tiempo, pasa sí. volando pasa volando, entonces si tienen ese deseo de estudiar en el extranjero, de viajar, de hacer un proyecto, apliquen, apliquen, como dijo Natalie, hay, hay becas, hay ayuda, hay apoyo, es cuestión de buscar, preguntar y buscar ese mentorship para, para ese apoyo, porque estamos aquí como evidencia y testimonio que existe y que funciona. Claro que sí, and you know, to summarize, I think that really is what being first gen, uh, for me, being first gen is a snowball effect. Mm. So, you know, textbook definition, I am a first generation college student because neither of my parents had the opportunity to go to college. My parents back home only had the opportunity to obtain a middle school education. My abuelitos only had the opportunity to study until elementary school. And for women in my family, you know, they grew up in a very conservative, very machista, very gender-specific community where women were only encouraged to marry, to have children, to stay home, be stay-home moms. I think a lot of us can relate Mm -hmm. to that with our abuelitas and our our moms. So for me, I grew up in that environment, but I also knew that I did not want that for me. I always strongly, strongly valued the opportunity to obtain an education in the U.S. because I was very aware of the reality back home. And then I became the first person in my family to graduate high school in the U.S. I became the first person in my family to graduate for bachelor's, to study abroad, to graduate with a master's, to become a first-gen professional, to have a white-collar job. So that's what I 
when I say that to me, being first gen is really a snowball effect of many firsts. And I know as my journey continues and I become older and mature, it will continue to be even more first and first and first. Absolutely. I love that. I love that definition of it's a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a good visual. And, yes. And it can be so, my gosh, I think one thing is being an undergraduate student, then being a master's student and then being a professional. Gosh, there's so, so many challenges that we have to navigate. So if I were to tell myself anything when I was younger, believe in yourself and don't place so much pressure on your shoulders because that will burn you out. Mm. For me, being one of the oldest, the third oldest in of my first cousins, I have 41st cousins. <laughs> yes. I grew up in a very, very large traditional Catholic Mexican family. Pretty much all of my aunts and uncles immigrated to the U.S. Most of my cousins did grow up here, so their experience was very different. I grew, I was born in Mexico and came here when I was five, so I still have a lot of connection back home. Mm-hmm. And because I'm the third oldest, I always had a lot of pressure, right? Not just knowing that my parents crossed the U.S.-Mexico border, that they risked their lives seeking a better future for us. But also knowing that I was the oldest, that I was the example for my little cousins, valuing that opportunity of being in the U.S. I There's a phrase that I always say and I love and whenever I do my keynote speeches is education is liberation. And when I was five years old and I stepped into that kindergarten class, I knew I knew that I just could not let the opportunity to obtain an education go to waste. And can you imagine being five years old and having that <laughs> much pressure? Like now I think about it, right? And gosh, no, like a child, <laughs> child. And unfortunately, when you're the oldest child of immigrant parents, you have a lot of responsibilities. You have mm-hmm. to mature really quickly. So I grew up interpreting for my parents. I grew up taking on responsibilities that now I realize that, you know, a, a child should not have to deal with. <laughs> so, for example, right, because my parents didn't know English, interpreting during doctor's visits. As the opportunity came about for my mom and I to fix our immigration status, because we were undocumented in the country until my 11th birthday, I was the one reading legal documents. I had access to my parents' bank accounts. Like, you think about this. Why is a child having access to all of this? But it's just part of being the oldest or the first in your family of many. Absolutely. And that's something that you carry through your professional career, your Mm -hmm. educational career. And I'm also the oldest in my, um, like my immediate family and also uh, uh, among the cousins on my mom's side, the third oldest and my dad's side, I'm a little like down the totem pole, like maybe fifth or sixth. Um, but also big family, a lot of cousins, first cousins. Um, oh, yes, first cousins. <laughs> first cousins. Um, so I t- that totally resonates with me. And now reflecting on your experiences as you graduated with your master's from Harvard. No es poca cosa graduarse de Harvard para empezar. Entonces vamos a dar un espacio de, like, honor your hard work and honor those experiences because um, to be sitting here to talk about that is really important. And also, how do you navigate those challenges that you talked about um, going through this educational experience, right? Um, 
we ha- we feel this pressure as first gen and also firstborn and one of the first in our family, um, the oldest. How do you navigate the challenges within um, undergrad or grad school with imposter syndrome? And um, do you think those experiences uh, being the first help you in that resiliency um, with all of that? Most definitely. You know, and now that I'm older, I'm 26. Now I know there's a term for those things that I was going through. Right. Uh, I'll tell you my very first challenge, I think, in my educational journey, when I first enrolled in kindergarten, of course, I didn't know a single word of English. And my name is pronounced very different in English versus in Spanish. In Espanol, mi nombre es Natalie, and en inglés se pronuncia Natalie. So the first few weeks, I would not respond to my kindergarten teacher because she said Natalie. And in my head, a five-year-old child, who's Natalie? So I wouldn't <laughs> respond. And eventually, I caught on. And one day I built the courage, le grité a la maestra con todas mis fuerzas en español, le dije, le dije, mi nombre no es Natalie, yo soy Natalie. And you know, I think, my gosh, I was only five years old. And I, I can only imagine that so many children my age went through experiences like that. And, you know, eventually... I just assimilated to my name being called Natalie. And I don't mind my name being called Natalie, Natalie. I have a lot of nicknames. Again, I think being Hispanic, you get a lot of nicknames. My primitos, they can't pronounce my name. So, you know, <laughs> the years they've come up with. Nati, Nata, Nati, Tali, my mom. So at this point, I really don't mind if people call me Natalie, Nat. I'm okay with it. But I know for some people, it can be quite a, a journey mm-hmm. to assimilate to their names. Absolutely. I have that that rings true with me as well. My name Delicia. Um, mm-hmm. I'm named after my grandmother. So I think it's very special mm-hmm. to have it and carry it. But also in that those experiences as well. I'm, the most recent experience I've had is in Brazil, because Delicia in Portuguese is an adjective and it describes oh. like delicious. I think in, in Colombia, también, they use it a lot as like delicioso, delicia, es una delicia sí. comer esta torta. En México también, sí. En México, uh-huh. okay. En Paraguay no tanto, por eso I will, my family's from Paraguay, if you're listening and didn't know that, um, it's, it, it really wasn't part of the, the day-to-day colloquial language. So um, it was a interesting experience being in Brazil every day, pronounce, uh, introducing myself with my name and people would be like, Ah, delicia, una delicia, una delicia. And they'll be like, is that really your name? Like, that's an adjective. (laughs) So So, so at this point, I'm like, yes, (laughs) yes, I am. (laughs) And those are fun. And those are things that we love about now. But when we were children or even teenagers, for me, oh my gosh, teenagers were the worst. (laughs) You are angry at the world because you're, you feel different. Yeah. Me. Unfortunately, you know, it wasn't just being first in, it was facing many challenges, such as seeing my father fall into alcoholism. Mm. The peak of that was during my puberty and when I was in middle school and high school, it was seeing my mom become a single mom. It was knowing that my aunt, seeing my aunts, right, witnessing my aunts and my mom also suffer from domestic violence. And that to me, further reinforce this idea that education is liberation, that education became to me the key to the American dream, but also the way to end generational poverty, generational misogyny, 
generational domestic abuse for the woman in my family. And I was such a serious kid. That's why I always, I tried so, 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 so hard in, in school. I was an honor student, right? I graduated high school with a 4.0 GPA. But now I reflect on that journey and I think, okay, so I was this kid that was doing good in school, but why did they have me keep me in ESOL until middle school, mm. right? If I was already speaking English. So I was simultaneously enrolled in ESOL classes, but also in honors classes. Mm. So now I wonder what, what happened there in my school district. Mm-hmm. What was going on there institutionally yeah. and structurally? Yeah, uh-huh. Well, you know, and it's not to say that I didn't have amazing, wonderful teachers. I, right. I did. I still have teachers from middle school that I keep contact with on Facebook, and they're amazing. But I also never had a Latinx, Latina, Hispanic teacher or counselor all of my K through 12 journey. And I think of how terrible that is because I grew up in a district district that's 42% Hispanic. Keep in mind, 42% Hispanic, and I never had a Hispanic teacher or counselor in K through 12. I had my first ever Latino counselor in college. Mm. And I had my first ever Black professor and Latinx professor at Harvard. Mm. So over 20 years of schooling for me to have a professor of color. Mm -hmm. And to see someone look like you and tell stories similar to our experiences it's it when we sit back on this side of the journey and reflect on that it's like okay this is why we do the work we do right this is why you work in higher education got this master's I work in higher ed have this podcast um is to hopefully spread the the stories that we exist in this world and that we're here to support students coming up after us of course of course when I enrolled at Harvard and I saw that I had three Latino professors and two of them had immigrant backgrounds and my first black professor I was just over the moon right not just it was more so because of the representation they knew what it was like coming from another country they knew the experiences of being first gen and all this diversity that that can that one person can hold so it was it was very very meaningful and when you were at Harvard, did it was during the Panini. So were you in person or were you online or was it hybrid? How did that work? Yeah, so I had to start my journey online. Okay. And I eventually was there in person. But it was so, so difficult because... Oh, let me tell you the story of how I got a at Harvard. <laughs> so, February 2020, I attended the Harvard Latina Empowerment and Development Conference. I found a way to get sponsored for it. It was an absolutely amazing journey because I was able to interact with all these amazing Latinas killing it in their games, motivational speakers. And then I was like, you know what? Let me let me tour the ed school. Let's let's just tour it. Right? I'm already <laughs> So I did. I felt really really welcomed. I felt super inspired and motivated. So I was like, you know what? Next year I'm going to apply to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Que puedo perder? Claro. And I was already a McNair scholar, which Ooh. is, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yes, Trio, yeah. Trio Student Support Services. Shout out to Trio. <laughs> yep. I'm part of Trio. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Oh, awesome. So I already had that encouragement that eventually I would go to graduate school. That happened. Then the pandemic hit in March. And then in May. So remember every single day. 
in May, the Harvard Graduate School of Education announced that they had reopened their application cycle for students to start online. And I freaked out, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they reopened their application cycle. Should I apply, should I not? I ended up applying. I gathered all of my documents in one month from recommendation letters, essays, transcripts, absolutely everything. And then on July 31st, I turned that in in June. July 31st, 2020, my mom were on a Delta flight to Mexico to care for my abuelitos. And I get this notification saying, hey, your admissions decision is ready. And I started to freak out. I said, oh my God, do I open it? Do I not? Do I wait until I land to Mexico? Should I be brave? And right when the plane was about to fly off, I decided to let me open it. It said, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I hugged my mom. I bawled my eyes out. I had never cried like I did. I <laughs> just of all her sacrifices, thinking of everything we had been through as immigrants all of our journey. And it was worth it because now her daughter would be going to Harvard for her master's. Oh, my God. It's so emotional. <laughs> it was. It was so emotional. And just like it was a blessing, it was also one of the most difficult moments in my life. Mm. Not just because it was still during the pandemic. I, it started online, right? I had to figure out finances last minute. Mm -hmm. I had to leave my full-time job because it was a one-year program. Around that time, I also reconnected with my dad after he was diagnosed with terminal cirrhosis because of his drinking. So it was very difficult to reconnect with my dad and also help them throughout a terminal illness and this goes back to and also because i was the only one in my family who spoke english right mm -hmm. i was the only one allowed in the hospital because i could interpret for him they gave me an exception at that time because it was still covid they weren't allowing any visitors at the hospital so i had that toll again being the only english speaker in my family being the only person that could visit my dad at the hospital and that's how I spent my first semester at Harvard online for two months. I went back and forth to the hospital. We were eventually able to transition my dad to Mexico. Those were his last wishes. My aunts cared for him in Mexico. Unfortunately, he passed November 2020. So it was my first semester at Harvard was one of the most, most difficult, most challenging that I've ever had in my life. But I'm happy that I reconnected with my dad. I reconciled with him. And, you know, we said our goodbyes in his own way. Mm -hmm. It was in a way our, our way to have closure. Um, you know, unfortunately, regardless of the life and all the challenges that my mom and I went through with him, I am still grateful for all that my dad did. He crossed the U.S.-Mexico border when he was a teenager. I always say it was a time when he should have been in school. He worked as a migrant farm worker for many years. My dad worked construction. My dad work in a poultry plant. He did very physical, very taxing, laborious jobs. But regardless, he still, despite him falling into alcoholism, he always instilled in me the importance of studying. Right. So yeah. again, it was such a bittersweet moment, but that's life. Sometimes you have blessings that also come with a lot of challenges. Absolutely. And I think 
having this conversation on a podcast or on a public forum is so important for our Latin, Latino intergenerational trauma wounds and healing um, because I just want to pause and give you like so much credit and bravery to talk about this on a public forum because this is something que no se habla. Que no, esto no oh. se habla, esto es privado, esto es la familia, la gente no debe saber. Eh, mm -hmm. Es algo que se mantiene en secreto, ¿verdad? Pero what we're realizing now in, in intergenerational trauma studies is that we have to talk about these things. Um, and anyone can choose how they want to talk about it, right? You don't yes. have to talk about it on a public forum. You don't have to talk about it with someone who will not honor the space and the story. Um, mm -hmm. But definitely try to find a therapist in a private confidential setting um, or shout out to Latinx Therapy. Make sure you check out their database. They have great resources for free Latinx uh, therapy sessions for some, for people or low cost. Um, if you don't have insurance, check them out on Instagram. I'll link it all in the, the description of the notes of this episode. But I think it's really, really important to unpack the bravery that it takes for Natalie to talk about this on a public forum. And, and if you decide not to do that for your own journey, that's fine. Um, but also I want to thank you for being so open and candid with us because that gives room for us to hear, okay, someone else has been through a difficult moment and she's also succeeded. She, you're, you were able to hold both, right? We have to hold the blessing, but also maybe some obstacles that come along the way um, and still can be successful, right? Um, and hold that journey um, and also healing for our communities because there's a lot of people who fall to alcoholism and uh, like you mentioned grounding your story with your dad being 16 and immigrating and crossing the border he was also a child this doesn't yeah. excuse and I want to be very clear for anyone listening this doesn't excuse any violence or abuse physical mm -hmm. emotional that people might have experienced but I also want to contextualize that he was also a child and give room and grace for his journey as well. May he rest in peace, right? He's no longer with you. So I think that's important to acknowledge. Yes. And he wasn't, he was, I believe he was 18. He was still a teenager. He wasn't 16. Um, oh, but yeah, my 18. dad was still a child. He, he was still a child. <laughs> yes, he was still a child. And, you know, it's the same story for my uncles. They were 16, 17. They were still children and they're already crossing the U.S.-Mexico border to seek better opportunities. And I'll say another thing, I, if there's something that I think kept me going, it was also the very close family structure that I had growing up. I'm very, very close to my abuelitos. My abuelitos mm -hmm. are like my second parents. My family is, is very bien unida, very tiny. I grew up seeing how my tios, despite being on opposite coast of the U.S., helped each other during hard times. If anyone ever needed money, if anyone ever needed to be taken care of, I grew up seeing, and, and I'm so proud of this, how much they take care of my abuelitos, how when they came to the U.S., they started adding on to my abuelita's house, right? Like they built her a bathroom, they gave her her first washer, they added a kitchen. So, it, you know, and it's so beautiful to go back home and, and seeing how my abuelito started it very, very humbly. They were very, very poor. My mom has, it's nine siblings in her family. Wow. And you know, seeing how that close knit family structure that they have, when my deals came to the U.S., they were able to improve her home. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful home. 
again, because my deals wanted to give back. And, you know, I'll tell you another thing about my journey, which is super important. I am very blessed that after my mom and I acquired our green cards, I was 11. The first time I went back to Mexico, I was 12 years old. And ever since, I spent almost every summer and almost every December holidays in Mexico, which allowed me to reconnect with my roots, uh, with childhood friends. It's also really helped me develop this strong sense of culture as well as my Spanish. Uh, one thing that I'm very grateful with my mom and dad is that growing up, they did not allow me to speak English at home. Siempre. En la casa habla español. Nosotros no queremos que tú olvides tus raíces, de dónde vienes. Essentially, they wanted me to be a quote-unquote no sabo kid, which there is nothing <laughs> wrong. I hate when people use it in a, in a bad I connotation. Know, being I know. Kid, yeah. Because I, I understand, right? I was very privileged and very lucky in that sense. They never allowed me to speak English at home. They sent me to Mexico. And also because I was an only child and the oldest one, I had to develop that strong sense of being able to speak in Spanish and English. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, right? There's also studies about this, right? Yeah. Let's say there's four siblings in a family. Typically, the oldest one is able to speak their parents' native language more fluently versus the youngest one because, you know, the oldest one is the one that has more responsibilities. They have to mature. They have to interpret. By the time the youngest sibling gets to school, well, they're siblings older siblings already know english yeah. they already watch cartoons in english their parents might even know english so right again it's, it's a generational thing so i always tell siempre digo mis papás no sean tan duros con sus hijos si no saben español piensen ellos no tuvieron una educación formal en la escuela donde se les enseñó español al menos que hayan tenido la suerte de ir a una escuela bilingüe pero ese no es el caso para todos los niños sí y también um it's part of assimilation, right? It's a, it's, a it's a survival mechanism that some parents make a choice to either mm -hmm. teach or not teach Spanish or whatever language um, they immigrated with. If you're or French, if you're or Haitian Creole or whatever the language is. Um, so it's also, it's both, right? We are proud of our culture and heritage, but also realizing the structural inequality that exists in the United States. And it's part of assimilation that parents have to make a choice. Um, and, they're just as Latino, Latinx um, as anyone who speaks mm -hmm. Spanish or who doesn't. So um, I think that's a, a great distinction to kind of talk about the language um, conversation as well. Sí, te digo, yo tuve ese gran privilegio de que dos veces al año me mandaban a México. Una de las razones principales fueron porque el pueblito donde yo nací, lamentablemente el agua tiene minerales químicos que te manchan los dientes. So pretty much everyone from my hometown in Mexico. And, you know, keep in mind, this is, it's a very rural village in the mountains. Uh -huh. um, their teeth eventually get stained with these, like, yellow decalcification spots. I was five. So coming to the U.S., I already had all these, like, yellow decalcification spots in my teeth. That's very mm -hmm. known from people who were born in, in Durango and Zacatecas, Mexico. And my mom, she always told me, she said, Mija, yo no quiero que tú tengas tu sonrisa manchada. I, I want you to be able to have a, a nice, pearly white smile. And she did everything within her means that she could to make that dream possible, even though we grew up in a low-income family. My mom would sacrifice her vacation bonuses so that she could afford to send me to Mexico and have dental work done. 
because I didn't have health insurance here in the U.S. and it was super duper expensive. So for the last 10 years of my life, I've had dental work done in Mexico. Like, uh, <laughs> it's, yes, yes, it's it's the bore. Like, I am so used to the dentist. Cada vez que voy a Mexico, I get something done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's but so again, funny. those are the sacrifices of a mother. And, and my right. mom she absolutely means the world to me. My mom has sacrificed so, so much. She wakes up at four in the morning to work at a poultry plant, which is very physically laboring taxing work mm-hmm. and growing up I have this very present she always tells me mija she would grab my hands right and she would be like mija tu estudia yo no quiero que tu trabajes como yo I want you to work in an office in an air-conditioned office yo quiero poder tocarte tus manos y que estén suavecitas que no estén como las mías because you didn't have to do physical labor yeah, and that's um, also true for our communities, and mm-hmm. it makes you think about what they go through to to help us come to this space of education and being in a different capacity, right? They're, they probably haven't dreamed that you can work in higher ed or that's a real job, right? Working in a university setting. I'm sure parents have thought about it, but there's no the, the language um, wasn't there to kind of understand what it means to work in higher education. So... Fast forward now, you graduated from Harvard, and I think I saw it on Facebook where you posted this video of you um, <laughs> putting your tassel over your mom before it went viral because we're we're friends on Facebook. So I was like, oh my God, so emotional. I was sending it to like my abuelita, my mom, everyone. I was like, look at Natalie. And then, um, and then it shortly after it went viral, and I saw it everywhere. I was like, "Oh my god, I love this! I know her." Yes. It was absolutely wonderful and crazy and overwhelming. I actually went viral on LinkedIn. That video has over two million views on LinkedIn, and it just started right. So after I graduated, I really want to credit my mom, and mm-hmm. I put a post of, of just our journey, right? Yeah. And. I always say my mom risked her life crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in 2001 so that I could cross a graduation at Harvard in 2022. I posted that video and it's kind of funny because so we were doing my graduation photo shoot and, you know, it had been an hour or so. We were hungry. We were tired. We were done with the photo shoot. We were at um, Widener Library at Harvard. And the whole time that I was reflecting, my mom has sacrificed so much for us to be here today. And then I was at the very top of the staircase and I was like, Ma, ven pa' acá, ven pa' acá. And she was like, por qué? You know, she was tired. <laughs> yeah, no more photos, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> yeah, I was like, tú ven, ma. <laughs> and then I started placing my graduation attire on her. My my tia started, grad- started graduating, started recording. <laughs> She props to her for being the narrator. I keep telling her, Tia, I'm like, Tia Blanca, you're the most famous Tia right now on social media because you narrated that video. <laughs> we had a Tia Blanca on the podcast. Yes, yes. My Tia Blanca should be here. Oh, my Tia Blanca. Oh, my gosh. I love my Tia Blanca. <laughs> so before I knew it, I went viral. I started getting messages on my LinkedIn and everywhere from Univision, from Telemundo, from all these newspapers saying, hey, we would absolutely love to interview you. Uh, I think at a point I did about seven interviews in one week. (laughs) I 
I had, let's say maybe a couple hundred followers on LinkedIn. Now I have over 5,000 followers, hundreds of friend requests, hundreds of messages. My inbox kept blowing up, uh, opportunities for speaking engagements, which really is how I, I launch my motivational speaking career, which I am just so happy to be able to connect with students and organizations throughout the US. So it has been wonderful to be able to share my journey with other Latino students. I know I'm not the only one that has gone through these challenging situations, but also blessings. And it's so beautiful to hear the journeys of other students. And yeah. now here I am. I love that. Can you pull up your tassel again to oh, yeah. show the viewers? She's wearing it on the podcast recording. This yes, is and I wear it every single time I give a speech, I wear it. So I, I thank you. I was able to personalize it in Mexico. As you can see, it has the Mexican flag. It says Latina in higher ed because that is my social media handle. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, everywhere except Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> on here, it says Harvard class of 2021, but on the back, it says Natalie Morales Villa, EDM, Education Masters 2022. The reason why I decided to personalize it this way was to be re very realistic. Originally, my program was only supposed to be one year, right? That's how master's programs work at Harvard. You take four classes every semester, you graduate in one year, versus a typical graduate school program is two years. You're taking about two, three classes per semester. So because I started during COVID online and I also reconnected with my father as he faced a terminal illness, I just absolutely had to request special accommodations. Right. Please, if you're a student that is facing a difficult situation, not just a death in the family, health issues, but mentally, if you're going through anxiety, any difficult situation, please go to counseling request special accommodations. For me, because I started online, my professors allowed me to turn in assignments late, not have to turn on my camera, right? There were times when I would be at the hospital with my dad and I was in class. And of course I didn't want to turn on my camera or just because it was just so difficult, right? I hadn't slept at night. Like the last thing I wanted to do was have my camera on. Right. Or sometimes I just could not participate in discussion posts. I had to leave the class early. You know, my dad passed away almost getting close to finals. My teachers gave me an extension. So please request those special accommodations. And I also decided that what the best thing for me was to delay my graduation. Mm -hmm. So instead of graduating in 2021, I graduated in 2022. So this was me being very honest. Hey, I was originally supposed to be class of 2021. Life happens. I graduated in 2022. It wasn't the end of the world. Absolutely. And the path is not linear. Life happens. No. Mm -mm. And I think that's so important for students who are maybe thinking of next steps or in undergrad, even if you're in undergrad, request accommodations, request support, ask for what you need. And it's so hard because we're used to like working our immigrant families working so hard and just getting by and doing it and doing it and doing it. And it's like, no, we're going to burn out. We're going to yes. like get, get sick. So I think um, that's a very good reminder for anyone listening to request what you need. 
Yes, and please, please go to counseling. I have been in counseling for the last three years. It's free at your institution. Your tuition is literally paying for the counseling service. Take advantage of them. I can tell you that I wouldn't have been able to speak as openly as I am now about all the challenges that I've been through if I had not gone to counseling. Absolutely. Make sure you're getting counseling, going to um, psychologists, a therapist. If you're Mm -hmm. you're on on campus, um, seek out those resources. And if you're not on campus and you're, let's say, a recent grad or a professional, check with your insurance carrier. And if you don't have insurance, check out Latinx Therapy. They have a lot of free low-cost services um, for all types of populations, especially undocumented folks. Yes. Um, so please check that out and I'll link everything in the comment section as well. Yes, please do. So what's next for Natalie after all of the viralness, the motivational speaking? <laughs> I know you started a project that has to do with Mexico, Pedacito de Mexico, correcto? Yes, Un Pedacito de Mexico is my absolute pride and joy, my passion. The purpose of Un Pedacito de Mexico is to connect Latinx students with their heritage via embroidered graduation stalls, such as the one that I have here. I also have some here. Ooh, I love that. These these were made in Mexico by Miss Angelica, which is a local seamstress in my hometown. She is also the person who designed the graduation stole that I am currently wearing. And as you can see, they are bilingual. They're in Spanish and in English. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you. Class of 2023. And then, Clase de 2021. I mean, 2023, perdón. (laughs) They also have this really cool pocket in the back for storage. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I don't know when you graduated, you went through this. So I had three, three graduation ceremonies at Harvard. They were super, super long. Of course, I was exhausted because you have to wake up really early. Mm-hmm. And I was hungry. I was starving. <laughs> and then you're wearing like all these heavy, stuffy graduation regalia. You can't really reach into your pocket. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, it would have been super convenient if I had a pocket where I could just put a granola bar, a snack, my phone. That's how it came about. But to backtrack, in 2019, when I graduated from the University of North Georgia, I remember really wishing that I had something that truly highlighted my culture, my immigrant journey. My institution didn't have any regalia of the sort. So I ended up finding on Amazon, literally a table runner, (laughs) a sarape table runner that looks like this, cut it, and it took me hours to personalize with stick on letters. I actually put on there a Gilman scholar because, you know, that scholarship helped me study abroad. I love that. And that's where that idea surged. And when I graduated with my master's, I'm like, you know what? I am going to personalize my graduation stole, really highlight my culture and also honor my family sacrifices. So this is how it came about. So now what I do, and it's also a combination of me growing up, going back and forth to Mexico. Right. I have always admired all the artisanal jewelry, which I'm wearing right now. Mm, I love it. Gracias, gracias. It's produced by indigenous artisans in my hometown. Also where I grew up here in Gainesville, Georgia, 42% of the population is Latinx. Unfortunately, 
A significant portion of the population is also undocumented. Uh, the majority of the population is from Mexico. So growing up, going to road trips to Mexico, people would always tell us, my mom and I, they would be like, oh my gosh, like you guys have the privilege to go to Mexico so often. Why don't you bring back traditional products? Like I would kill to try the candy that's made in our hometown that I haven't had in 17 years. Can you imagine that? Wow. That's what I do now with Un Pedacito de Mexico. I connect Latino students here in the U.S. with their heritage through embroidered graduation stalls, artisanal jewelry, and also the traditional sweets produced in my hometown. And I destined a percentage of every sale to buy school supplies for the children of the artisans. I love um, that. Thank you. This December is the first time that I'll be able to do this. And I'm, I'm really, really excited. I'll tell you a very personal story of when I was five years old. I remember I would be going to kindergarten, right? And, you know, of course, at that time, my family still lived very, very humbly. So my mom and my abuelita Paula, to be able to purchase my school supplies, they actually made uh, embroidered un mantel para la mesa, a tablecloth. And that's how they were able to purchase my school supplies. And I remember at the time, like my abuelita's kitchen still had a dirt floor. That wasn't uncommon for people back in, in our hometown. You know, now that it's been 20 years that people are in the U.S., there's been a lot of development. So like now there's paved roads, you know, people have been able to expand their homes. I mean, that's one of the reasons why my deals came to the U.S. They wanted to be able to build a home in Mexico. That's why my parents came to the U.S., right? They they said, oh, nos vamos a ir a Estados Unidos unos tres, cinco años. Vamos a ahorrar dinero para acabar de hacer la casa en México, Five years became 10, 15, 20 years, and look at us, we're still here. <laughs> it's always dos, tres años nomás. <laughs> sí, 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 sí. Do you envision moving back to Mexico or for your future, or do you think you'll stay in Georgia, or what's next for Natalie? Yeah, so for now, I would like to stay in Georgia. Yeah. I go to Mexico twice a year, right? And I stay yeah. for extended periods. I'm, I'm really lucky to be able to do that. I would absolutely still love to do the ETA Fulbright in Mexico. Mm. Um, I don't think that I could stay in Mexico for more than a year because unfortunately, professionally and all the opportunities are here in the US. Mm -hmm. right? that's, that's the reality of it. As much as I love Mexico, mi Mexico lindo, querido, amado, todas las oportunidades profesionales están aquí en Estados Unidos. Esa fue la razón por las cuales mis papás y, y varias generaciones han, han emigrado a este país. Claro. That's something that I have to come to heart with. And I always say, mi vida es en Estados Unidos, pero mi, mi corazón está en México. <laughs> y estás trabajando ahora en una universidad, estás trabajando o solamente con motivational speaking, or, eh, y tú, eh, ¿es un non-profit, un pedacito de México? O es, eh... Todavía no. Okay. Le falta mucho por desarrollarse, pero la idea ya está ahí. Pero la, la idea está ahí. Sí, sí, sí. Mira, lo que yo hago, hago bastantes cosas. Sí. Una de ellas, <ríe> por el último año, he estado trabajando con una compañía. Soy traductora, ¿verdad? Certificada. Okay. Entonces, en Harvard conocí la fundadora de una compañía que se llama Stages Learning. They provide autism curriculum for school districts to the U.S., 
they're expanding into the Spanish market. Market, so I've been their lead translator, translator, helping them translate their lessons. That's the main thing that I do. Claro, sucedió esto de motivational speaking. Sucedió esto de las estolas de gradación. Y también, conforme me hice viral, han habido bastantes proyectos. Entonces, ahorita soy 100% una emprendedora. Trabajo bueno. desde casa. Ajá. Y pues estoy muy agradecida con todas las oportunidades que se me han dado. Hago un poquito de todo, pero todo está funcionando. Sí, todo, todo va encaminando, todo. Eh, creo que un, una emprendedora latina, entrepreneur, es un fabuloso title. Gracias, gracias. Y tú sabes dónde te va a mandar el mundo. Claro. Es cuestión de estar abierta a la oportunidad. Como dice mi papá, hay que tocar puertas, hay que tocar ventanas. Si no se abren, la rompemos. Sí, yo estoy tan agradecida que desde que me hice viral, cada mes he tenido la oportunidad de compartir mi historia, ya sea con una organización, ya sea en una universidad, non-profit. El primer evento que hice fue en Kansas, por mm. nuestra Latina Awards. I was their keynote speaker. They invited my mom. It was, it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And like I told you with the first gen, it's been a snowball effect. Snowball, yes. So just like I was the first person to graduate in my family, I also became the first person to become a motivational speaker in my family, the first person to become a Latina entrepreneur. Yes, me encanta, me encanta. ¿Alguno um, nuggets of wisdom que quieres dejar con lo, los um, audiencia, con el audien la audiencia? I was going to say los escuchadores, but that doesn't sound right in, in Spanish. The listeners. Um, claro. Any last minute nuggets of wisdom uh, before we um, say our goodbyes? Sí, mira, te voy a contar de una experiencia que viví cuando hice mis prácticas en el Congreso with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. I was a poli-sci undergrad major. Of course, interning for Congress, it's like a, a dream come true for any policy major. And I was accepted into the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute program. It was amazing because it was fully funded from flights to housing. You get a stipend, everything. Please, 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 everyone, if you can apply, apply. I'm a huge advocate for student, to students applying to that internship. I was elated. But I face what I now know is called imposter syndrome. Mm. Of course, this internship was destined for Latino students. I received a lot of professional development. But also, I would absolutely be horrible to myself, right? I would walk the halls of Congress and I would think to myself, what am I doing here? Like, mm. yo que sé, there are students that are way smarter than me. Like, all these politicians are have all this like super amazing background, like aquí una niña que nació en un pueblito en México, like whose parents were was whose dad was a migrant farm worker who whose mom worked at a poultry plant, not because I was ever, ever embarrassed of their working class background, but because I just didn't have any relation to people whose parents had maybe a master's degree or had maybe worked on political campaigns or who had just way more experience, lived experiences. It didn't mean that they were smarter than me. They just had way more lived experiences than I did. And, you know, of course, I would encounter people who grew up in wealthy families or 
who had this very cutthroat mindset because that's that's pretty much what DC is. Yeah. <laughs> or who spoke in lingo that I just didn't understand. And I just told myself, what the hell am I doing here? I don't I don't belong here. It was so hard. I never should have put myself down that way. Mm. It wasn't until now that I believe I 100% belong there because I was being an advocate for my community because I have believed the experiences. I absolutely deserve that internship. I had the grades. I had the community service. I had good intentions to want to be an advocate for my community. I never, ever should have been as hard on myself. So I know there are so many talented students that get to these privileged spaces, right? Whether it's a corporate internship, whether it's having to move out of your hometown for this life-changing opportunity and you get there and you realize that people come from more advantages or privileges as you, don't ever, ever put yourself down. Believe in yourself. You 100% deserve to be in that space. Te lo ganaste. And now all you have to do is keep shining bright like you were. Exactly. That's that's it. Mm -hmm. Imposter syndrome is real and it's an institutional thing that we kind of deal with day to day. Um, but it's important to remember where you come from, right? Garner that wisdom from your parents or ancestors that they mm -hmm. also went through hard things and you carry that resiliency with you and you can do it. And no, no te lo iban a dar y no te lo iban a pon poner ahí si, si no creían que lo ibas a poder hacer. Claro. Uh, así es. <laughs> and I wanted to say, and I also applied three times for that internship, so... <laughs> <laughs> keep it's it going yeah a perseverance mm -hmm. absolutely y eh, donde la gente puede encontrarte en, en social media si sí, mira uh, número uno en instagram es donde más estoy activa también en linkedin la verdad que otro pedazo de consejo que le doy a los estudiantes, hagan un LinkedIn. Entre más temprano lo pueden hacer mejor, publiquen absolutamente todo lo que tenga que ver con su educational professional journey. Si se ganaron una beca, si fueron a una conferencia, si están haciendo investigaciones, si están en un internship, cualquier reflexión que tenga que ver con el profesionalismo, publiquenlo allí porque es como se van a hacer notar, cómo van a empezar a hacer conexiones y cómo van a aprender sobre becas y sobre oportunidades para el desarrollo profesional. I never imagined that I would go viral on LinkedIn. So, sorry. I had another TikTok go viral, not a TikTok, my bad, another video go viral on Instagram, but it only got like 900 views on TikTok. Y el mismo video que publiqué donde le coloqué el atuendo de graduación a mi mamá tiene más de 2 millones de vistas en LinkedIn, pero solo tiene como 500 vistas en TikTok. Entonces, yo sé que nos encanta estar en el TikTok, que en Snapchat, what is it, Be Real, todas las cosas en las que están los jóvenes de ahora. Pero si pueden estar en esas redes, también pueden estar en LinkedIn y es por su bien profesional. Pero sí, por favor, me pueden seguir en Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Igual un pedacito de México está presente en LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram también. Poco a poco estoy desarrollando mi proyecto. Yo sé que no es perfecto, pero eso es parte de aprender el desarrollo, ¿verdad? Claro. Aún no tengo sitio web. Esos son los planes futuros, tener un sitio web. Claro, es todo parte del, del journey, es parte del proceso, es, es importante empezar y lanzar y hablar y de ahí ver cómo se, se revela. 
Sí, y nada es perfecto. Yo he fallado, he cometido varios errores y he aprendido de esos errores. Lo importante es que te levantas después de haber sucedido lo que sucede. Así mismo. Muchísimas gracias, Natalie. Esto ha sido un placer. I loved our conversation. Make sure you follow her. Make sure you um, support her journey. And if you would like to have her as a guest speaker or as a um, someone hosting your event, make sure you reach out to her. She's doing her motivational speaking tours. So make sure you check her out. And also, if you would like any regalia, she's your girl. Yes. Aquí está. Okay. Check I it out. Personalize. Síganme. And oh, something to note: my the proceeds from my motivational speaking mm. also go back to my organization, Un Pedacito de México, que apoya la educación de los niños en México y el desarrollo profesional de los estudiantes latinos aquí en Estados Unidos. Así que gracias, gracias por dejarme compartir mi historia. Yo sé que es larga. No importa. Aquí no hay time limit. <laughs> Aquí hablamos y eh, yo pienso que es importante hablar de toda la historia porque a veces nos, cor nos cortan, no nos dan suficiente tiempo y yo no soy de esas personas que quieren cortar la historia, la inspiración. Entonces, a veces tenemos episodios de dos horas. Wow, wow. Entonces, um, vamos a seguir el journey de Natalie y cuando ella desarrolla más cosas, vamos a tenerla de vuelta para un part 2, para que nos cuente los, sí, updates, eh, los updates de un pedacito de México y dónde le ha llevado su journey y también para alentarla para aplicar a Fulbright y todos los otros proyectos Sí, sí, sí claro que sí un gusto, sí, un gusto And until the next one my friends <laughs> <laughs>